0: It's the 12th of November, 2017, and this is episode 348 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey.
1: And Andreas Antonopoulos.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: So I was uh, perusing the Reddits and discovered an article in the best of reddit a couple of days ago that someone had discovered that the ufc streaming app was using Coinhive to mine monero on people's computers as they were streaming and it 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 became one of the biggest stories on reddit and kudos to you stephanie because you were right on the money on 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 saying that that was something people should look at
3: (laughs) Well, it was a coincidence that they happened so close together. But yeah, I'm glad we were covering that topic because this might be just the tip of the iceberg. There could be a lot of software that has CoinHive in it that people don't know about. I actually just saw a story yesterday that said there was a WordPress plugin that was like supposed to be a weather app or something, and it would load an iframe and then inside of there it would be mining for CoinHive.
1: And and it looks like it's exactly how you described it, where it didn't make money. It didn't make sense for the UFC to actually put it in there. But one small-time developer who said, hey, I could make a couple grand a month, uh, that's probably how it happened. So anyway, I'd like to credit him finding out by you, but I don't think the episode's timed up exactly right. Suffice to say, you're in the zitgeist. Sweet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this story starts in the late spring, early summer, at the same time as the New York Consensus Conference And during that conference, a whole bunch of CEOs and different people from the business side of Bitcoin got together and forged a compromise agreement called the New York Agreement or N-Y-A. And the essence of the New York Agreement was to do a two-step dance. Step one, activate segregated witness. Step two, increase the base block size to two megabytes. And this was. many think this was done in response to the possible user-activated soft fork and to prevent that from happening in a way that might be disruptive in that game of chicken. I think the uh, SegWit got activated on August 1st, preventing the UASF from forcing its activation. And then immediately started a sequence of events that would lead three months later, 90 days after the activation of SegWit on November 16th to a fork. A fork to increase the base block size, a hard fork not backwards compatible, and one that at its peak had the support of almost 90% of the hash power. But over time started experiencing defections, criticism about the potential for replay attacks, having replay protection, a lot of controversy, and it appeared that the consensus behind that was very shaky. Yesterday, completely out of the blue, six of the signatories of the New York agreement, probably some of the most influential signatories of the New York agreement, including Mike Belshi, CEO of BitGo, Eric Voorhees from Shapeshift, Wences Casares from Zappo, Jihan Wu from Bitmain, and Peter Smith from Blockchain Info, signed a letter announcing that they did not see the necessary consensus And since the project was intended to bring the community together with compromise rather than split it apart, the lack of consensus would lead to it not achieving its goals and in fact splitting the chain. And so they called it off. And just like that, an agreement forged primarily between power players within the Bitcoin community and industry in a closed-door deal, was canceled by power players in the Bitcoin community and industry in a closed-door deal, just like that.
3: Mm, Yeah, so this means we won't get a block-size increase in the near future in legacy Bitcoin. Not so fast. Okay. (laughs)
2: 30% of the miners
3: just said, screw that,
2: we're going ahead anyway, and... That is still a rumor. It's not quite confirmed, but they posted in direct response to the announcement. But if they did, in fact, take 30% of the hash rates and do a fork on November 16th as originally planned, now they will decidedly be a minority, which for most purposes, I think, can be safely ignored by the rest of the industry.
3: Well, 30% is a pretty big minority. Uh, 30% is what we added in the last three weeks. It's nothing. 30%
0: is a big minority compared to something like Bitcoin cash, right? And so this actually brings into kind of one of the areas I wanted to talk about in this because I don't really think that I understand it. And when I've heard people talking and I've had conversations about SegWit2x, a lot of people seem to think that What was going to happen at this uh, fork date was that we would have SegWit2x on one side of a chain and we would have Bitcoin normal on the other side of the chain. And it would be a situation largely analogous to what we've seen with Bitcoin Cash where there are actually two separate vehicles that never reconvene. But SegWit two X was intended to be more of an upgrade than it was a spin-off or a fork in that way. So is there a scenario where both SegWit two X Bitcoin and you know, normal Bitcoin are actually exist and we have both, or is it one or the other? I, I think the intention was to
2: have overwhelming consensus on the side of the two X upgrade and given the initial support by ninety percent of the hash. Rate, Without a difficulty adjustment, which is what Bitcoin Cash had in order to sustain itself, a chain with 10% or less of the hash rate isn't really survivable. You go to 100-minute blocks, you're going to stay at 100-minute blocks for 20 weeks before you get a difficulty adjustment to make the chain start moving again. And during that time, the effective capacity of the network is now 10% of what it was before. So a successful consensus-driven 90% supported by hash rate and many of the big businesses in Bitcoin would have been successful. And I don't know that you really would have two chains. I mean, I think there will always be a diehard contingent that will keep an original chain alive with whatever hashing power they could keep going. I don't think chains will die, especially chains that have had the history of Bitcoin. I think someone's going to keep them, even if it's only one person. But commercially, it would not really have been viable and it would have become the minority chain. That was the plan. That plan did not play out because there was not enough consensus and agreements with the rest of the community and it was being resisted strongly by enough people that it wasn't going to play out that way. And at that point, I think once they realized it's not going to be an upgrade, it's going to be a chain split, and all we're doing is recreating Bitcoin Cash all over again. And of course, the financial futures on Bitfinex were showing a pretty big disparity with 2x trading at one-sixth of the value of 1x, or the original chain. That wasn't a very good uh, idea. Some of the calculations that were posted just a couple of days prior to this showed that in order for miners to sustain a 2x chain while mining at a lower value coin, they would have to burn about $100 million in 10 days.
3: Of electricity?
2: It's the opportunity cost. They would burn the same amount of electricity as they burned before, but they'd get one-tenth of the reward. So they would be losing approximately $10 million in reward per day. And this is because of the discrepancy between hash power and value. So Segway2x presumably had 80% of the hash power behind it, but it only had 20% of the value. And that discrepancy would have to be reconciled on the network and to fill that gap they'd have to pour $100 million of lost profits into it.
3: Yeah, so obviously there's a huge cost to doing a fork. It's not just something you can do on a whim. (laughs) But the thing that I'm really wondering about is, if I just look at this without really, I don't really understand uh, the technical concerns about replay attacks. Just looking at it from the outside, kind of with a bird's eye view or (laughs) not getting too detailed, I'm wondering like what made the original signatories of this New York agreement Change their mind or what made some people change their mind and say, okay, now that we have SegWit, we've done the first part of the agreement. We don't really need to do the second part. We, we can back out or we it's too soon or something. I heard some concerns like it's too fast or we can't increase the block size now because it's too soon. So explain that. Well, part of the,
2: the challenge here is that increasing the base block size, doubling it, once SegWit has already been activated, has a cascade effect because SegWit increases the weight of a block, kind of the cumulative capacity for transactions, to to almost 4 meg. If you change the base layer to 2, SegWit then multiplies that and turns it into 8 meg weight, which means that with the ability to move the signatures out of the base block, Segregated Witness would take that 2 megabyte increase, turn it into 8, which would put a very significant burden on node operators, especially those with limited bandwidth. And that's always been the big concern among those who support the small block mentality, is that if we increase too fast, we make it harder and harder for people to run nodes. And we can see that play out actually in real time in the Ethereum chain, which has quadrupled in size in the last year, is now approaching 400 gigs, has far overtaken the size of the Bitcoin blockchain. And as a result, the number of nodes has dropped precipitously. And that, some would say, damages... Decentralization and censorship resistance and robustness of the system.
3: But the number of Bitcoin nodes, as I understand it, is already pretty small, right? They just don't want to make it smaller.
2: But the number of Bitcoin nodes that are listening is six or seven thousand. Those are the ones that advertise an open port. There are probably an order of magnitude more that are participating passively and not really sharing blocks. And that's small. It's smaller than it was in the beginning. And, and the real reason for that is quite simple. You couldn't run a wallet without a node. And once you could, people stopped running nodes. The same thing happens now in Ethereum. At first, the only way you could run an Ethereum wallet was if you were running a node. So Ethereum had lots of nodes because every wallet was a node. And then once lightweight Ethereum wallets came out, that number dropped precipitously. It's hard to maintain a network when no one's rewarded for consuming all of this bandwidth and storing all of this data.
3: Right. But nobody's talked about incentivized nodes in Bitcoin. I haven't heard anything about that in a while. Well,
0: it's been talked about, but I don't think it's ever been done. One of the flaws that I've seen in Bitcoin for a long time is that the mining reward can only be given to a single public key.
2: There's a couple of technologies that are actually primed to address both of those issues. The first one is the idea that Lightning network is something that you would run on top of an existing full node. And if you have a full node, you can run a Lightning network on top of it in order to monetize the full node that you have. So then you could become a hub for Lightning and collect fees. So it's one way to actually leverage the full node and get rewarded for it. And the other thing you just mentioned, which is paying to a single public key for miners, which has led to the centralization of pools... There's a technology being developed now, which is kind of at the last stages of specification called MAST, Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees. We talked about that briefly. And you could essentially have a payment to a tree that contains tens of thousands of public keys with MAST. So that may offer some relief there, but, you know, Those those are all scaling optimizations.
0: So those are solutions that have been in the works for quite a long time in many circumstances. So again, it's not that there's no activity on this. It's just that there's no actionable activity yet. And these things take a long time to develop a lot of times. So it seems like we are getting to a place, Stephanie, where the ability to do kind of more of this mass uh, awarding uh, will become more efficient and potentially possible.
3: Mm -hmm. Okay, but in the meantime, we're not going to see a block size increase unless there's this minority chain that happens and it would be very expensive. But right now it's not it seems like it's not really in the cards. Well, in the meantime, we did see a block size increase. We saw a block size increase
2: from 1 meg to an effective size of almost 4 meg with the adoption of SegWit. And that has already been producing blocks bigger than one meg since August 1st. The percentage of transactions that are Segwit capable has been increasing. Had a small setback, but I think now that 2x is off the table, a lot of the companies that have a big burden of fees are going to look at implementing Segwit faster. And the end result is that we're seeing blocks come out that are 1.6, 1.8, 2 meg. We saw a 1.9 and a 2.1 meg block recently. So we have had an increase. This would have been on top of that increase.
3: But is it too little too late, though? I mean, is this really enough to address the volume of transactions that people want to do right now?
2: well the The answer to that question is the root of all of the debate that has happened about scaling, and it's a question about the nature of Bitcoin and what it should be supporting and how resources that are scarce should be prioritized and So there's a broad debate about that, but I think the answer that we've seen the market give us. Is that they would rather see um, the market would rather see a conservative approach that's not rushed, that doesn't cause disruption to existing systems, and that has broad consensus. And anything that doesn't do that fails.
3: Yes, some of the market wants that, Andreas. I agree. But Bitcoin Cash is not dead or gone. There is at least a portion of Bitcoin users and people who care and have an, have an interest in this that do want something different.
2: Absolutely. And I'm delighted that Bitcoin Cash exists because it offers exactly that. And it's a different direction. So people can choose to have one or the other.
3: Yeah, I'm glad there's an option, too. I just think that when we talk about it, I mean, we can't ignore that (laughs) not the whole market agrees, you know, (laughs) and that's okay.
2: No, although I think what the market has shown clearly is that there's a lot of reluctance to proceed with anything if it appears to be disruptive. The status quo wins if there's uh, the potential for disruption. And part of that, I think, is an important lesson, which is if if you go online and you read in the forums... People are going to say, okay, the big blockers lost or the New York Agreement supporters or the Segway2x supporters lost this particular debate.
0: They've lost a lot of debates at this
2: point. Well, they've lost the initiative in this particular case, right? But I think it's important, from my perspective, I would say that doesn't mean that the small blockers won. And it's important to recognize what it actually means. What it means is that broad consensus and status quo won. CORE didn't win here because CORE didn't get its way either in many of these things. So every time one of the constituencies of consensus tries to pull away from the herd, they lose. But it's not like another constituency really got the power. The power still remains diffuse among all of these different groups. And I like that. I think the idea that you can only get change if everybody moves together uh, with overwhelming consensus, I think that's a very, very important and very strong characteristic of Bitcoin that was recently vindicated in a big way. But that doesn't mean the core one. It means that status quo and consensus and conservatism won.
0: It means the physics one, really. It means the momentum of the situation and kind of the momentum of things matters much, much more here because of that diffuse characteristic than it does in most places.
2: Absolutely. And if Core had tried to hijack debate in another direction by, for example, forcing SegWit to activate at a lower threshold, or they, they would be licking their wounds down. I think the outcome would have been the same. The network would have rejected a minority change. As long as the network keeps rejecting minority change, then Bitcoin gets stronger. And I'm very glad to see that.
0: So, Jonathan, you're kind of our man on the ground in New York and you're engaging with people on a regular basis. I'm super curious Was SegWit 2X an issue that people were talking about? Was it like who actually cared about it in your circles? And kind of what was the thought about it? Is this a consistent outcome, basically, what we've seen here
1: to what you were hearing? In the business, investor, and developer sort of different types of events that I would go to, I think people are just, they're sort of done. The only person that I would go to an event and hear talking about Segwit2x would just so happen to be Elizabeth Stark. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth Stark of Lightning. Yeah, I mean, just because it directly affects her, (laughs) but even her, even Elizabeth was a little drawn out by just how long this has been going for. And it's sort of like, let's just see the pudding, like, let's uh, stop talking about it and just see if it happens. I think it's sort of like if if you've ever gone to Korea and you're like, well, what do you think about the North Koreans? Don't you think about it every day? Aren't you concerned about it? I think that Bitcoiners have, in an anti-fragile context themselves, found new resilience to threats of hard fork. In the same way that like the South Koreans are constantly under threat from North Korea, they just grow this resistance where they just, they, they just stop caring. They just, they don't have it in them to care anymore. And I think that a, a lot of the people that, that I've met or hung out with sort of have this like, it'll happen if it happens. And until then, I'm just going to go do real stuff. And just, you know, when it happens, it happens.
2: There's one aspect to this that I think is worth mentioning, and that is the cost that was imposed or taken on by the businesses in the space. So I, I talk to various businesses in the space, including exchanges and wallet companies, etc., This was not a small undertaking. Preparing for dealing with Bitcoin Cash in the first instance, UASF, the SegWit activation, and then preparing for the possibility of a contentious, no replay protection fork with varying difficulty happening on November 16th. We're talking about millions of dollars expended in development, research, security, infrastructure builds. Almost every exchange I spoke to, had built parallel infrastructures, multi-currency infrastructures to handle Bitcoin Cash and BTC Traditional and B2X. The discussions with lawyers and regulators about what would be called what, how it would be offered, whether we'd give back to the clients, you know, all of that. So do not underestimate what this actually did and how much of a, not just a distraction, but a sink of resources this entire thing was. A lot of companies basically have done nothing for the last five months than fire drills, planning, preparation, technology, deployment, security, etc., all around the possibility of these forks. This has been an enormous drain. So one of the good things we'll see coming out of this is that hopefully this will free up some development time and focus for many of the companies in the Bitcoin space to work on things that make a difference to their clients.
1: But I I do think that that's a feature, not a bug. So just that it was a fire drill this time and not an inferno doesn't mean that now the ecosystem as a whole is greatly benefited from those people having gone through the exercise of knowing exactly what they will do if that emergency were to ever arise. Like Bitcoin sounds more anti-fragile because of SegWit 2X not happening than it did if we just said, Hey guys, eventually in the future, you'll have to figure out this problem. I mean, The fact that it didn't happen is even better. It means that you know it wasn't a concern. I think it's great to have an excuse to force everyone to genuinely know what they'll do in the event of a crisis, um, so that all of that planning's there when we actually do need it.
2: Without a doubt, I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, it made me feel exactly the same as I felt on January first, two thousand, when people said, "Oh man, that Y two K thing was just a load of bullshit," and me. Together with you know half a million internet and systems engineers around the world went, oh fuck you! We've been working for eight months to make sure nothing happens. Like the only reason nothing happened is because half a million engineers have been working for the last two years to make sure nothing happens. No, you don't. You don't get to. (laughs) You don't get to say, oh well, maybe you shouldn't have used so much steel in the bridge. it hasn't fallen down.
1: Whenever a sysadmin complains, I like to think of God in Futurama, where Bender meets God and he goes, "God, why don't you do more?" And he said that you know something's been done right when you know nothing's been done at all, and that's sort of the that's sort of the cross that a good sysadmin has to bear is that when his job is happening, no one knows he's doing anything at all. I wanted to also bring up Y two K is preparation for the twenty thirty eight problem.
3: What's the 2038 problem?
1: So if you look up year 2038 for data storage, the 32-bit integers, we run out on the year 2038 so like 32-bit computers or uh, signed 32-bit integers will, will 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 loop back around because they're done by the i think millisecond ever since january 1st 1970 so if you, if you go on wikipedia i can't explain it good but if you go year 2038 like that's the real y2k bug. so that's another doom and gloom
3: all right well we have got about 20 years to prepare for that so get on it
1: <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thinking that leads us to being a year before it be oh god why did we prepare?
0: one thing i've noticed in the last 48 hours is that a lot of people who have been kind of on the side of pushing for more on-chain scaling on the primary bitcoin blockchain sooner are no longer doing that it just seems like people burn their reputation through trying to make this happen and then they tire out and then they basically are done with that and i think that we're seeing a lot of people who for a long time have been trying to push this larger block mindset into bitcoin now saying, "All right." Never mind. Clearly, this isn't going to happen. So I'm, I'm now done. And I'm going to not necessarily saying that they're selling their Bitcoin or anything like that, but that they're no longer kind of looking at that as the solution to have every transaction on, which is a meaningful change from my perspective. And I have been seeing some of that retarget towards Bitcoin cash, but I'm wondering if this is actually perhaps the birth of the meaningful use case for Bitcoin Cash, where we don't have the potential or even the meaningful hope of near-term scalability on the actual Bitcoin blockchain. Maybe after Lightning Network is out and sidechains are out and these other kind of future technologies that we've been talking about for a long time and that will come out at some point, but in the interim – Like when I paid our editor for the last episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I paid him for four episodes at once because the transaction fee, even at the super economy setting of copay, was several percentage points of what the total value of the transaction was, which is, again, a fairly new thing over the last six months.
1: I don't know, man. I've been forcing transactions down to like 30 cent fee or 20 cent fees, and they they get their first block within an hour.
2: Yeah, me too. I never pay more than 20 satoshis a byte. I sometimes time my transaction to avoid like obvious peak hours, but I've never had any difficulty making payments far below the lowest fee setting. But, you know, I mean, part of that is a bit of lock and timing. Part of that is the wallets are getting better at fee estimation and offering features for custom settings and things like that. But you're right. Here's the thing, though. I have a question for you. If you're looking at Bcash as the alternative that's faster, you know, kind of cash to Bitcoin's gold, then the real question is, what is the main differentiator between Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin? Other than Litecoin doesn't have the completely crappy emergency difficulty adjustment that causes it to oscillate between no blocks and too many blocks and no blocks and too many blocks.
1: I mean, the, the major difference is the economic consensus. Bitcoin is happy with Bitcoiners owning Bitcoin and Litecoin doesn't have the consensus of all of the holders being the exact same as the Bitcoin holders.
2: Right. So it's the airdrop is the differentiator.
0: Right. No, but but I mean, that's the point is that, like, I have Bitcoin cash, whereas I don't have any Litecoin that I'm really interested in spending in this way. I'm, I don't even care about the fastness. Like the fastness is not important at all. I'm using super economy fees. But I mean, that's the – I guess the differentiation there is the wallets that I use aren't offering custom fees. They just offer five fee settings and I'm using the cheapest one. But it still costs, you know, 6 $7 per transaction.
2: Which is why you need to get yourself a wallet that actually does offer custom fees. I think part of this has – resulted in pressure to make wallets better. And that's the one good thing we get, which actually makes the entire system much more anti-fragile because it makes it harder to spam the network with transactions in denial of service and things like that. By the way, Bitcoin Cash is planning to do uh, an emergency hard fork in order to fix the difficulty adjustment algorithm. So maybe it becomes much more viable and stable and smoothly operating once that's done.
0: Well, I think the other thing that's potentially different from what I've seen is that to this point, there have been different teams that are working on creating different types of things that could all be folded into Bitcoin Cash. And now that's essentially what I'm thinking might happen. I'm curious if it does, if we see all of those kind of disparate efforts instead converging on one project, maybe it's Bitcoin Cash, maybe it's something else. Bitcoin Cash seems like the likely candidate to me right now, because to this point, I think there's been just a lot of hope by people who are in favor of big blocks that they were going to win and that their you know version of Bitcoin was going to be the version of Bitcoin. And now I'm I'm increasingly seeing. That maybe it's just because of this temporary loss and they'll, you know, come back and decide to keep fighting the fight. But from what I'm seeing, you know, a lot of people are done with that fight and they're either looking at other things. And one of those other things is Bitcoin cash, which, as Jonathan said, compelling to Bitcoiners, because if you have Bitcoin, then you have some Bitcoin cash, whether or not you've claimed it at this point. Please let us be done with this fight, please. It is so exhausting. What's always been the best case scenario here is that both sides get to do their own thing and get to prove their own vision and whichever one is right, or maybe they're both right. We actually get to see that. And then as Bitcoin holders, we get to benefit from both. And thank God we can stop talking about who is right and just literally see what happens in real life. Can Can I just say I was wrong? Uh, I just want to have that on the
2: record. We had this conversation maybe a few months ago. And the conversation between Adam and myself, I don't know if you remember, Adam, we were talking about whether hard forks might be a better option. And I was like, I really, really don't want to see a hard fork. And he said, But if we have a hard fork, people will have a, their own option and it won't be that bad. You were right. I was wrong. I didn't want to see a contentious hard fork, but the way it happened didn't do any damage to Bitcoin. In fact, it made it stronger. And in the end, everybody got what they wanted.
1: I kind of think that all of this energy being spent towards fighting is just the nature of consensus. And, And the reason why we've hadn't had it before is because we hadn't hit the scale necessary to hit the emergent property called intersectarian fighting because we finally bitcoins finally hit the scale where you know because fundamentally we're dealing with humans people are now you know arguing and you know you get to the point where everyone says you know i i'm sick and tired of all this intersectarian fighting can't everyone just agree with me already (laughs) it's like (laughs) sort of the conversation that's occurring and i personally believe this might be a larger tangent for another time that decentralization is not an emergent property of a billion people or of two billion people people, that the nature of the problem changes, that you can't effectively model decentralization to three billion people in the same way that a fly can skid across a a pond or walk up a wall, but a human can't, that the the nature of the scale changes the things you can do with that. And I think that personally, what decentralization will look like when Bitcoin hits a billion or two billion people is that we'll have as many things calling it Bitcoin as we have as many things calling themselves Christian. Christianity forked so many times they had to come up with another word.
3: Yeah, this is... The great point. I Yes, I always like to bring this up. At one point, there were three popes, and nobody knew which was the real pope or something. Well, they all
1: were. Pope one was good for Pope one. They were all consensus based, right? So within, within your framework, he was the pope, and those were infidels. And, and we're seeing that occur now, that, that humans are messy and fuzzy, and that if you want to do something with a billion people, three of the groups are going to fork and do their own thing and then argue about how can't everyone just agree with them?
2: I'd like to say I just did a talk on exactly this topic, which is the idea of which Which one is the real Bitcoin and that answer does not have an absolute truth because it's a subjective experience and the nature of decentralization means there is no leader to impose a definitive answer. And so exactly that happens, which is the real English, which is the real Christianity, you know, which is the real Pope. It doesn't matter. What matters is which one is useful to you and which one do you want to use. In the end, that means we're going to have the emergence of a very fragmented ecosystem. As long as we can take some of that fragmentation and abstract it in our wallets so that they handle the nuance, it doesn't really matter. We really have to get over this idea which comes from traditional money, that this is going to be a winner-takes-all with a specific trademarked brand that is produced by an authority. That world is gone.
1: But I think that as we're evolving, we just had our first group of Protestants, and, that, and then we might get another fork, and we might get another fork, that like we should understand that instead of asking, like, let's try to prevent at all times, let, let's make sure that everyone agrees with us at all times, that if only they could agree with us, Think, what are the uh, requirements? What would it look like when it is appropriate for Bitcoin to have a sectarian group move off fork? And, and so in the same way that like you have Christians, you have Christianity, you have Genesis chains and like any chain any blockchain that drives its Genesis chain from the Satoshi block is a canonical Genesis chain. It's just a different fork. It's a different group. And that instead of saying like, will Bitcoin hard fork say, is this group of people sufficient and have a sufficient claim and have a sufficient desire or or different view, a vision of what they want to do, that this is an appropriate time for us to spool off another Genesis chain, another sec uh, another group. And, and and rather see it as a problem where you just, you know, we need to get to a billion people, but have everyone agree with us. Just say, you know what, as, as long as everyone agrees with us on ninety eight percent and we all maintain relative consensus, but we have diverging views on this and this and this, or that I, I personally don't ever believe a billion humans will use Bitcoin. I think a billion people will be using Genesis chains.
2: And one of them will come up with 95 new consensus rules, write them down on paper and nail it to the door of Coinbase headquarters in San Francisco.
0: Today's episode of Let’s Start Bitcoin is brought to you by easyDns.com. EasyDNS is the only domain provider that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum. Blockchain startups are challenging the status quo. When yours attracts attention, you need to know that your domains will be safe. EasyDNS loves blockchain, and they're a stickler for due process. As a valued client, you are leading a revolution that Easy wants to be a part of. So, when it's time to register or renew your domains, remember EasyDNS is the official domain provider for Let'sTalkBitcoin.com and a great place to be. Back to the show.
2: As you reach different levels of scale, the problems change dramatically because the behavior of the entire system crosses a threshold, a tipping point, into a new state. And that kind of state transition, you know, solid to liquid, liquid to gas, the transition from 10 million people to 30 million people, the transition from $100 to $1,000 to $10,000, whatever it may be, the transitions in scale, change the behavior of the participants, they change what can be considered consensus, and they create new problems. And we just are about to watch another big transition happen in Ethereum. The previous big transition was the enormous stakes in this concept of unstoppable code and immutability that ran headfirst into the practical reality of the DAO and that mess, which was a $155 million potential loss. And now we have that playing again, only this time it's at a much bigger scale. Last week, another bug was discovered in probably the most popular multi contract made by Parity Technologies. And this bug allowed someone to accidentally, on purpose, we're not sure, they said it was an oopsie, Take over the base library contract, convert it into a multi-sig wallet, and then kill it through a suicide function on the Ethereum blockchain, rendering more than $300 million in Ether inaccessible and unspendable as they are locked in multi-sig contracts that require a library that no longer exists. And now we have to have that conversation all over again. Should Ethereum hard fork in order to bail out the parity multisig wallets, which, by the way, hold mostly the funds of all of these ICOs. Or is
0: unstoppable code unstoppable code? To be clear, these funds aren't stolen. They're just inaccessible. And right now, they're not saying that they're inaccessible forever. But as a practical concern... They're inaccessible forever unless somebody figures out how to break it in a new way that saves it, right?
2: Well, the announcement from Parity, and I'm just assuming that they did probably the best early analysis of this library because they understand it the best, was that this could only be fixed with a hard fork. The suggestion right now is to do it in the already scheduled upcoming hard fork, which is the second part of Metropolis.
1: I find it interesting that people without virtue like to go to virtue when they need defense. And it, it just so happens that when it's their money, all of a sudden, now it deserves a hard fork. So the last parody bug was what? Like $200 million stolen, but $50 million of that returned. And then it was still 30 or $40 million of people's money that they were caught out on. No one called for a hard fork for that. But, you know... Polkadot, which is Gavin Wood's company, who happens to be the inventor of Ethereum, loses $91 million personally in this multi-sig bug. And all of a sudden, this is appropriate instance for when we need to consider a hard fork for lost funds. When it's the king's money, that's when a hard fork is appropriate. But when it's the people's money, you know what? You know what, guys? Code is law. You should have known better. That's what you get.
0: One of the things that's different about this compared to the DAO, and this has come up before because this is not the first time that people have called for or that there's been a hard fork called for in order to remedy something like this, is that even though this is more money in a you know dollar terms, it's much, much less in terms of the overall number of Ethereum that's out there and the overall value that's captured in the, in the Ethereum marketplace right now. So it's still like, even though it's a bigger dollar figure, as a percentage of the total amount of Ethereum out there, it actually is substantially smaller than what we'll
1: we saw for the dough. I just want to know, what is the principle? Like, what is the uniform principle that they are abiding by?
3: There is no principle. And you hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah.
1: If you're saying that when people lose money and it's on the basis of a non-intended bug, that that is an appropriate instance for consensus to be reverted and for those people to be remunerated, then you know what? When Vitalik pressed enter on the Genesis block, he didn't care in the command line to make invalid parameter addresses in Invalid. So what happened is if you, if you sent an address that just functionally was not an appropriate ether address, it would still go through and send those funds to the zero, 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 zero address. So right now, if you go to Ethereum, look at all of those people who lost all of that ether. That's now worth insane amounts of money. And that I haven't looked at it. It might be worth 50 million or hundred million dollars right now. Why can't we give them back their money? If, if we're hard forking to give people back their money on multisig bugs, can't we fix that? If, can't we give those people back their money? Like, where does this end?
2: It ends with a government saying, that's a really nice, unstoppable code platform you have there. But here's a list of code. Stop it. Here's the thing. Unstoppable code is code that somebody wants to stop. Otherwise, there's no freaking point. And at some point, someone's going to write the Silk Road contract in Solidity, and they're going to run an entire dark market on Ethereum. That is worthy of unstoppable code. That is where unstoppable code is necessary, because someone will immediately want that stopped. And what happens when the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance or the government of XYZ go to the very few people who have in the past activated hard forks to stop things and say, here's a list. We know you have the ability. Therefore, you have a duty of care
0: and a legal responsibility to now stop this. Right. So this actually gets back to a point that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about over the last six months, which is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general – like if you want to create an uncensorable, unstoppable situation, then you want something that looks like proof-of-work mining because you want something that is essentially a provable money-burning contest, right? That's one of the only ways that you can have anonymous people actually establish that they have skin in the game. And it's from that characteristic that we get both the uncensorable nature and many of the decentralization characteristics that are so desirable about cryptocurrency – But we also get the really terrible scaling characteristics. And so the question very quickly becomes... Do we need uncensorable systems to do whatever it is that you're trying to do with the blockchain? And the answer almost all of the time is no. It actually gets back to that conversation that we had maybe, uh, I guess, a year ago with one of the guys from Bazaar, right? Because Bazaar is creating this alternative protocol for commerce that doesn't use the internet layer. It uses their own kind of protocol layer. And so there's all this really cool stuff you could do with it. And one of their big selling points is that it's decentralized and uncensorable in some way. And the problem there is that for commerce – the vast, vast majority of commerce is very well served by existing options that are out there. You can just go and sell something. You don't have to kind of invent the wheel with something like this. And the things that are well served by a solution like Open Bazaar are things like used underwear vendors, where it's like something that's not illegal because they didn't have the uncensorable characteristic at the time, you could still track somebody down. So you didn't want to actually be selling illegal things through it. But it, it's not you're not allowed to do that through PayPal. PayPal won't process those transactions because they think that business is icky. And Amazon won't let you list that because they think that business is icky, right? So like there's this very small subset that where this protocol is super, super useful for, but it's not most people. And so because of that, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to have most people use that system unless there suddenly becomes a reason. So looping back around, I mean, isn't that the same basic situation here is that there are all these ideas about using things that look like decentralized networks, but they don't need the uncensorable characteristic nine times out of 10, at least. And because of that, really, there there is this small subset that where it's hugely valuable. But for everybody else, we just kind of like want the abilities without actually having to pay that cost for all the decentralization.
2: Oh, right, it's spot on. And, you know, that is the simple truth. That is why most of these blockchain projects that are trying to rebuild Web applications using a decentralized database, essentially, claim that they need a blockchain, but in fact, they undermine their own immutability and uncensorability. And what they get is simply the slow part of the database. And those don't make a lot of sense. But there are many applications for which uncensorable payments, uncensorable websites, uncensorable storage are absolutely vital and in fact you don't need everybody to have that you just need the ability for that edge case to exist for the same reason that you know for the vast majority of people due process is not a really important consideration neither is free speech because they haven't been arrested and they're not trying to say anything interesting or anything that other people are trying to shut up But unless you have the ability for those edge cases to exist in a society, you have a big problem. So we do need one uncensorable blockchain and we do need one uncensorable payment system because that vastly broadens the ability of human expression and it opens up all of these edge cases that are suppressed at the moment. You don't need all of them to be like that.
1: And these types of rollbacks are only going to get worse once Ethereum switches to proof of stake. When it's when it's the people who lost the money that get to vote on whether or not they want immutability to not be the characteristic when they lose money, you're going to find it a lot easier for them to come to consensus on hard forks.
3: But how are they going to vote if they lost their old stake?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, then then that'll be the rule in Ethereum. Don't give anyone any more money that you then can't force a consensus hard fork to take back.
2: Right. I mean, think about it. Actually, it creates the exact opposite moral hazard because the people who still have Ethereum and can vote in a proof of stake systems are the ones who didn't lose their money and their money is now worth more because the total supply just went down. They're the least incentivized to actually vote for a rollback to give other people money that if they don't. They essentially get to keep in increased value.
0: That actually is a good point. So it's like it's existential threats would have there'd be an incentive to respond to those because it endangers money that hasn't already been lost through whatever it was that caused it. But things that aren't existential threats, you're right.
1: That incentive comes in to just say, all right, sorry, you took your loss. At least I didn't. I would would, would be delighted to see that happen. But I've never known in my experience a blockchain that had some sort of consensus based on stake that was more immutable than a proof-of-work system.
2: It won't be more immutable than a proof-of-work system. And I think it goes back to what Adam said. And I strongly believe that immutability is an artifact of consensus or an effect of consensus algorithms. And proof-of-work provides a qualitatively different degree of immutability than proof-of-stake. Now, Vitalik disagrees strongly with that and proposes that it is entirely equivalent. The only way to test these two proposals is through a grand experiment in which 150 billion dollars are staked and we're going to see that experiment play out in next year. It's going to be interesting.
3: Yeah, I think it's worth bringing up something that you've said before Andreas about proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work, it's the only way to create the security that's needed for like a large network effect and there's no shortcuts, there's no way around it and so it provides a lot of security, but also also, it's not without a stake of something because for, to do proof of work, you essentially are staking electricity. And electricity is not intrinsic to the chain, you know, to the Bitcoin chain. It's, it's outside. It has value independent of whatever Bitcoin's doing. And so if you're staking coins that are on a chain to make decisions on that chain or to do the proof of stake on that chain, maybe they have no value. And that's the problem of nothing at stake, right?
2: The game theory gets much more complicated because you have these second-order effects. The very thing you're staking affects the value of the thing you're staking.
1: So in the Bitcoin world, there is BitShares that experimented with this product called a contract for difference, and they issued something called BitUSD, and the idea was it would be, I believe, 300% collateralized with BitShares, the token, to synthetically track the dollar. And the ultimate problem is that someone can always look at that, make it not equal a dollar, create a collapse on the underlying collateral of bit shares, and there is no recovery. It's just constantly going down. And and then it doesn't matter if it's 300% collateralized because if you're only collateralizing it with one thing, which itself loses value correlative with when the system loses value, you have a total systemic collapse.
2: Which brings us full circle back to the whole parity bug. I don't know if it's clear how I described it, but, you know, this is a, a fairly significant problem, and it's a problem that has occurred now a number of times.
3: The parity has had a lot of bugs, though. That's the thing. Like, No, that what it's you're had to...
2: two. It's had two. But OK, so first of all, necessary disclaimer, the founder of parity and co-founder of Ethereum, Gavin Wood, is my co-author for the book Mastering Ethereum, which is delayed for no reasons related to this, but for personal reasons of my own. And I have not discussed this with Gavin, and it doesn't affect my opinions on this. The bottom line is, uh, Gavwood's, design solidity he's he's essentially the the creator of the solidity language and one of the things that causes a lot of people concern is if the people and the company that designed the language cannot write a secure contract in that language what does that mean i think what it means is simply that it takes a lot longer to mature a language and bytecodes and virtual machine that has the amount of rich expression, that's as Vitalik calls it, or rich statefulness, or the amount of exposure or an attack surface, as I would look at it from an information security perspective. That doesn't mean it's impossible. And it's a worthy trade-off because that flexibility allows you to do all of the things you can't do with something like Bitcoin script. But there's a trade-off. And the trade-off is you have to mature it much more carefully and over a longer period of time before you can really feel confident in the security of the contracts. For the last year or so, I've been contacted by dozens of companies that are asking for advice on how to store Ethereum, especially in a corporate environment where you want separation of duties. And where with Bitcoin, I would recommend a multisig in Ethereum. I have steadfastly recommended against using any contract and instead using externally owned addresses, even if we have to go to nasty kludges like Shamir's shared secret system, in order to separate duties without using a contract. And the underlying rationale for me was really simple. We cannot yet trust the maturity of any contract to
1: implement multisig. Excuse me, excuse me, except for those multisigs in Bitcoin.
2: The, the multisigs in Bitcoin are based on a much more narrowly defined script language and have had six years to mature.
1: Right. No, I just I just wish to say the statement to clients that we cannot trust multi-sig in this industry is entirely contained to Ethereum, not to Bitcoin.
2: We we cannot trust smart contracts yet as wallets.
1: So that comes down to colloquialism, because I think that multisig calls our smart contracts in Bitcoin. They just don't call it a smart contract because it's you can't you can't it's not modular, but it is, you know, it, you can buy a car in Bitcoin as long as it's black. Right. But it's still a car. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm very confident that Bitcoin's multisig is sufficiently mature tested. And because it is a core protocol feature and very, very simple in its implementation, it's robust. It's been tested. It holds a lot of money. Now, I would like to see something similar emerge in Ethereum. In fact, I I believe it will, but not yet. And right now, the contracts that are written in, in Solidity are too complex. And the entire infrastructure from the virtual machine upwards is has not been tested enough with enough funds. I mean we just had it tested again. So now we know the limits of that technology and we're going to iterate and it's going to get better. It doesn't mean we can't do this with smart contracts. It simply means not yet. And I think that's the real lesson here. The promise of smart contracts is enormous in their flexible form that they come with in Ethereum. But we have to be aware that the maturity curve is going to be a bit longer in this technology.
0: Right. And I mean, that really is the thing is that it's just kind of the newish nature of the smart contracts themselves, because as you're saying, you know, Gavin Wood, also Polkadot, right? Not just Parity, but Polkadot. So he's a large loser when it comes to this hack. He has all the incentives in the world to figure out how to fix these problems and get it fixed since he has so much of his own money kind of on the line here. But like, this is probably the best audited multi sig smart contract out there. It has the the creator of the protocol working on it with his company, and it's in use by hundreds of different companies out there that have used it to store funds that they raise. So again, like a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how in this industry, we have people who are following what the early innovators did, thinking that those are best practices, but in reality, they're just first practices. And we have no best practices yet because we haven't gone far enough down the rabbit hole and haven't you know, tripped over enough things yet to figure out where all the obvious potholes are.
2: We do have best practices and the best practices for holding segregated funds with separation of duties in Ethereum is externally owned addresses. And those are the ones that my clients have applied for the last year in defiance of all of the suggestions to use a multi-sig contract. So (laughs) I have a bit of an investment in saying, actually, we do have best practices, And unfortunately, the best practices are not very convenient at the moment. And they don't use the feature set because we're not ready to do that.
0: Okay. So then for a normal person who's not going to jump through all the hoops for Shamir's secret sharing, it sounds to me like the kind of the safest way to store, you know, funds is with like maybe a hardware wallet. If
2: you don't need separation of duties, then you don't really need multi-sig contracts. And uh, yeah, I would use an externally owned address, which basically means a private public key pair generated from a hardware wallet and signed using a hardware wallet. And that's how I hold my ether.
0: So uh, there are a total of 584 wallets affected by this. And if you happen to set up one of these Parity wallets and want to check, you should go to affected.parity.com. That's affected spelled with an A.
1: And, uh, and unlike uh, Equifax, you do not have to sign an agreement saying you won't sue before you're able to see if you're affected. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and The New Time. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin, and episode 348 was sponsored by EZDNS.com. If you have any questions, comments, or interesting Bitcoin discussion topics, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.